U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by Christoph. Hey, buddy. Hello, Captain. How are you doing today? Oh, I am wonderful. How about you? Uh, just shy of wonderful, because I want to have something to aim for. If I was wonderful, it's just like, the only way is down. I mean, no offense to you, who's already wonderful, but I want to look forward to wonderful. You know what I mean? Sounded like a threat to me. No, I'm not threatening. I'm just saying this is a difference of... Yes, okay. Let's let's just dive in. I think the listeners are here to learn. All right. So where we left off is we had just finished talking about the last battle that the U.S. was a part of in the West Indies and Gulf Coast area of operations. All the rest of them did not involve the U.S. Navy, so we're not going to actually cover them. So if you guys want to know more, because there were a whole lot more battles, you can, you know, do your own research. Yeah. Perhaps we have we can get a sister podcast of the French Navy History Podcast, and they can they can discuss it there. Oui, oui. <laughs> so what we're going to be talking about today is the India area of operations. Like subcontinent of India, India? Yes. Huh. Now, the U.S. Navy didn't have any battles there. It was mainly the French the Indians and uh, Dutch and the English, but it was part of the Revolutionary War, so we're going to touch on it just briefly. Cool. So are you ready to get underway? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's set sail. So when word reached India in 1778 that France had entered the war, the British East India Company moved very quickly to capture French trading outposts there capturing Pondicherry after two months of sieging the place, and also the capture of the French-controlled port of Mahi on India's west coast, which the Mysore's ruler wanted, a guy named Haidar Ali, because he was ticked off of other British actions in the area. And that they benefited through trade at that port. And this was actually the opening of the Second Anglo-Mysore War in 1780. So Ali and his son, Tipu Sultan, they almost drove the British from southern India. But they did not get French support as much as they had liked. So they were very frustrated at that. But the war did end the status quo antebellum in 1784 with the Treaty of Magnalore. The French forces in the area was led in 82 and 83 by a guy named Admiral Bali de Safran, who recaptured Trincomalee from the British and fought five really good really inconclusive naval engagements against the British, who was commanded by a guy named Admiral Sir Edward Hughes. Now, after the war, the, the trading posts that France had in India were returned to them. Now, the Dutch, they were nominally neutral, but they had been trading with the Americans, exchanging, you know, arms and munitions for the colonial wares. And they primarily did this through St. Astutius before the French formally entered the war. Now, the British, they considered this trade contraband because it was military supplies. And they tried to stop it, first diplomatically, because they appealed to the treaty obligations that they had. And, of course, both sides interpreted it differently. Then the British up the ante by searching and seizing Dutch merchant ships, which, of course, is going to escalate the situation. And it did when the British seized a Dutch merchant convoy sailing under Dutch naval escort in December of 1779. And this prompted the Dutch to join the League of Armed Neutrality. That sounds like a very intense 
Like it's it's armed, it's a league, but we're steadfastly neutral, and that just seems like an odd combination. That's a weird title, but continue. Well, I'm excited to hear about the LAN. Well, well, this was a alliance of European naval powers, and the intent of this was to protect neutral shipping against the Royal Navy's wartime policy of unlimited search and seizure. That's interesting. That reminds me of the unrestricted naval warfare that the Germans imposed in World War II. That didn't work out so well for them either. It's like, hey, what the heck, man? You were just trying right. to move cargo. Stop it. Uh, World War I, too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes. Correct. So the British responded to this by declaring war on the Dutch in December of 1780. And this was the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War. It was a military and economic disaster for the Dutch Republic. It was also paralyzed by internal political divisions, which means that it could not effectively respond to the British blockades and the capture of a lot of its colonies. In 1784, a peace treaty between the two nations was signed, and the Dutch lost the Indian port of, oh, this is going to be butchered, Negapatam, and they were forced to make trade concessions. The Dutch did sign a friendship and trade agreement with the U.S. in 1782, which means that they became the second country to formally recognize the United States. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the Treaty of Paris. So political support in London plummeted after the Yorktown battle. And the Prime Minister, Lord North, resigned in March of 1782. So in April, the Commons voted to end the war in the United States. So the preliminary peace articles were signed in Paris at the end of November in 1782. Although the formal end of the war did not occur until the actual Treaty for, of Paris and the Treaties of Versailles was signed in September of 1783, September 3rd specifically. And so the last British troops left New York City on November 25th, 1783. And then there was a Congress confederation that ratified the peace treaty on January 14th of 1784. Now, the British did negotiate the, the peace treaty without consulting the Native American allies that they had. And they ended up ceding all Native American territory between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River to the United States. Native Americans were reluctantly confirmed that the land sessions with the United States in a series of treaties. Of course, we all know how those treaties were made. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, of course, because of that, the fighting was renewed in a number of different conflicts along the frontier in, you know, the coming, what, next hundred years? Yeah, something like that. Uh, the largest of this, these wars was the Northwest Indian War. The British had sought to establish a buffer Indian state in the American Midwest and tried to pursue this goal as late as 1814 during the War of 1812. The U.S. gained more than they had actually expected to gain because of the award of the Western Territory. Now, her allies had mixed to poor results. France had made some gains over Great Britain, but its material gains were very minimal. And they had a huge financial loss. And they were already in financial trouble because they had gone into a lot of debt just to pay for the war and ended up using all of its credits, which uh, created the financial disasters that France suffered during the 1780s which historians have linked to the French Revolution. Yeah, my son did a report on uh, the end of the American Civil War, and he was explaining to me, because this is something I had not heard. I guess it's not popularized in the history books that I had read when I was in school, 
But France was like, yeah, we'll help you. We're very happy to help you. We don't like the British. It's a win-win for us. But whenever you negotiate peace, make sure that we're at the table. And that was kind of their one thing they asked for. Mm -hmm. And we were like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And then we didn't do that. And we totally screwed them over. And uh, yeah. we negotiated peace just, uh, what is it, unilaterally with Britain and cut them out completely. And they were like, "What? what's up? Yeah, that's why there was two separate peace treaties, one for the U.S., one for everybody else. That's crazy. And then Treaty of Paris, I wish they would uh, name them something different because there's like <laughs> over 20 treaties of Paris throughout the ages. I think it goes back to the 1500s, maybe earlier. Anyway. Well, Fra France did see a lot of war. Yeah, well, I guess I think what it is is, hey, let's negotiate peace. Where do you want to go on vacation? I hear Paris is great. Fantastic. Let's go there. It's kind of like doctor's conferences in the Bahamas. That's my yeah. That's my assessment. Yeah. Now, on the Dutch front, they lost everything. Mm. They did not gain a thing. The Spanish, their results were mixed. They did not achieve their primary goal, which was to get Gibraltar back. But they did get some territory. But, you know, in the long run, because, you know, just like Florida shows, their new territory had little or no value. So let's talk a little bit about the combatants. So Great Britain and Ireland in 1780, their population was approximately 12.6 million. Whoa. While, yeah, while the population of the 13 colonies for that exact same year had been estimated at 2.8 million, including about half a million slaves. So theoretically, this gave Britain a 4.5 to 1 manpower advantage. By comparison, the Union's manpower advantage over the Confederacy was only 2.5 to 1. But in practice, the British army really never had more than a slight numerical advantage over the Continental Army because of a number of different factors. They had the need to maintain significant numbers of troops outside of North America. You know, they're really fighting a four-front, three- or four-front war here. Yeah, they had a lot of holdings around the world, and I'm sure they were trying to keep them all. Well, they were also fighting France, the Dutch, and Spanish. True. That's right. Much closer to home. Yeah. Also, conscription outside of naval impressment did not exist in Britain back then, so they didn't have a draft for their army. And also, the proportion of Americans willing to serve in their own country's defense was considerably larger than the proportion of Britons willing to serve overseas. There was a pre-war estimate that claimed that the Americans could mobilize 100,000 men in a matter of months. But the loyalist or neutral sentiment would be able to keep the Patriot forces much smaller than their potential. The historians, they continued to debate whether the odds for the American victory were long or short. A historian by the name of John E. Furling said that the odds were so long that the American victory was, quote, almost a miracle. But I'd say it, it was actually, yes. Yeah. Now, now, historian Joseph Ellis said that the odds favored the Americans. And he argued that when he was asked whether there was ever any realistic chance for the British to win, he said that the opportunity came only once in the summer of 1776, and the British, they failed. Admiral Howey and his brother, General Howey, quote, missed several opportunities to destroy the Continental Army. Yeah, we covered that chance, in the first episode. Yeah. To continue the quote, chance, luck, and even the vagarities of the weather played crucial roles. His point is that the strategic and technical decisions of the Howies were fatally flawed because they underestimated the challenges posed by the Americans. He concluded that once the Howie brothers failed, the opportunity for a British victory would never come again. Now, there is a section in the official U.S. Army's textbook saying that while the British difficulties were great, they were hardly insurmountable. 
The British forfeited several chances for military victory in 1776 and 77, and were again in 1780. They might have won had they been able to throw 10,000 fresh troops into the American War. So let's talk a little bit deeper on the main belligerents. Uh, let's talk about the U.S. The Americas, they began this war with a lot of disadvantages compared to the British. They had no national government, no national army or navy, no financial system, no banks, no credit, no functioning government departments like a treasury. The Congress tried to handle administrative affairs through legislative committees, which were, of course, inefficient. The state governments were themselves brand new and officials had no administrative experience. And in peacetime, the colonies relied heavily on ocean travel and shipping. But now that shut down by British blockade. And so the Americas only had slow overland travel. Now, the Americas did have a lot of advantages that in the long run outweighed these initial disadvantages. They had a large, prosperous population that did not depend on imports. They depended on local production and food for most of their supplies. While the British, they were mostly shipped in from across the ocean. The British faced a vast territory far larger than Britain or France, and they were located at a far distance from home ports. Most of the Americans lived on farms away from the seaports, and the British could capture any port, but that, you know, did not give them control over the hinterland. Right. The Americans were also on home ground. They had a smoothly functioning, well-organized system of local and state governments, newspapers and printers, and internal lines of communications. They had a long-established system of local militia that they used with combat against the French and Native Americans. They had companies and an officer corps that could form the basis of local militias and provide a training ground for the National Army created by Congress. They also had huge motivation. Yes. They wanted to win. Over 200,000 fought. 25,000 died. And the British expected the Loyalists to do much of the fighting. But they did a lot less than what they were expected to do. The British also hired German mercenaries to do a lot of their fighting as well. And, you know, mercenaries are mercenaries. Yeah, they don't, they don't have skin in the game. Right. At the beginning of the war, the Americans had no major international allies. But the battles such as the Battle of Bennington, the Battles of Saratoga, and even the defeat at the Battle of Germantown proved decisive in gaining the attention and support of very powerful European nations like France and Spain, who moved in the shadows to supply the Americans with weapons and supplies. And then, you know, just completely supporting them militarily later, which moved this local conflict to a global conflict. So this could be like World War half. World War 0.5? Right. There's some <laughs> preliminary, well, I guess Asia's not involved, Africa's not necessarily, I, well, India. Right. It, yeah. it's, it's, not, it, it's not a world war. It's like a quarter world war. Yeah. Because we had, there were battles in the waters off Britain, even some uh, land raids. There were battles in India, France, uh, you know, a lot of that area. Yeah. Yeah. In the uh, Caribbean, there's a lot of Spanish, French, Dutch holdings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, World War 0.25. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Continental Army suffered significantly from a lack of effective training. They largely had inexperienced officers and sergeants, and this was compensated for in part by its senior officers, such as General George Washington, Horatio Gates, Charles Lee, Richard Montgomery, and Francis Marin. They all had military experience with the British Army during the French and Indian War. 
So having a very experienced senior leadership is a boon to these guys. They did solve their training difficulties during the winter quarters at Valley Forge because that's when they relentlessly drilled and were trained by General Frederick Wilhelm von Steuben, who was a veteran of the famed Prussian general staff. He taught these guys the essentials of military discipline, drills, tactics, and strategy. He pretty much wrote the Revolutionary War Drill Manual. So when the army emerged from Valley Forge after the winter, it proved it was now equally matched to the British troops in battle. That's impressive. Uh, so when this war began, the colonies lacked a professional army and navy. Each colony had a local militia who were lightly armed. Again, not very well trained and didn't even have uniforms. Their units served only for a few weeks or months at a time, and they were very reluctant to travel very far from their home. So that means they were not available for extended operations. Yeah, I could see that. If, if you have mainly an agriculture-based economy, being there to make sure that your crops are coming in properly during the harvest and whatnot, you, you don't want to be away for that. Well, not only that, I mean, they're a local militia. They're only going to be protecting their little chunk of American territory. Yeah, that's, that's all they care about. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I tend to think of the states in modern terms and not colonial terms where they were very different, had very different laws and very different attitudes. So you wouldn't, as a Georgian, you wouldn't care about the Virginians necessarily or, or whatnot. Right. Exactly. Now, they were used properly. Their numbers could help the Continental Army overwhelm the smaller British forces, such as at the battles of Concord, Bennington, Saratoga, and the Siege of Boston. And both sides used partisan warfare, but the Americans were able to effectively suppress the Loyalists when British regulars were not in the area. So there goes their partisan stuff. Yeah, all their capabilities were just totally shut down. Yeah. The Continental Congress established a regular army on June 4th, 1775 to coordinate their military efforts and appointed George Washington as the CIC or commander in chief. The development of this army was always a work in progress and Washington used both his regular and state militia throughout the war. The United States Marine Corps traces its roots to the Continental Marines of the war as I'm sure I mentioned earlier. Oh, yes. And it was formed officially by, a, by the Continental Congress on November 10th, 1775. And this is regarded and celebrated as the Marine Corps' birthday. At the beginning of 1776, Washington had 20,000 men, with two-thirds of them enlisted in the Army, and the other third were militiamen from various states. At the end of the revolution in 1783, both the Continental Navy and the Continental Marines were disbanded. This happens a few times before they're like, okay, we just need to keep them. A small token Navy is kept, but it's not very Not much. full fighting force type Navy. No. I guess that's good uh, to maintain discipline and um, the knowledge of senior officers, like you were mentioning at the beginning, because we had that knowledge base in those guys, we were able to execute better. And so even if you shrink your Navy down or Army down to a small degree, you still want to maintain that tribal knowledge, so to speak. Well, I mean, if you disband the Navy altogether, now you don't have any defenses for your merchantmen. Oh, that's right. Uh, about 250,000 men served as regulars or as militiamen during the Revolutionary War in all eight years. But there were never more than 90,000 men at arms at one time. Armies were small by the European standards of this time. And it was largely limited by things such as lack of powder and other, you know, logistical 
capabilities that they had. But it was also difficult for Great Britain to transport troops across the Atlantic. And they also had to depend on local supplies that the, you know, Americans tried to cut off. Right. They were antagonistic to the British effort for some reason. Yeah. To make a comparison, there is uh, a guy named Frederick the Great. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh, yes. The uh, German or Prussian, perhaps? Prussia. He usually commanded anywhere between twenty-three to 50,000 men in battle. So that's, you know, a comparison of the small engagements versus the European normal huge engagements. Right. I mean, the, the both figures, they pale when you try to compare them with armies that were fielded in the early 19th century, where the formations were at least 100,000 men. Oh, yeah. Once uh, Napoleon started drafting everybody, well, he, he has one of my favorite quotes. Uh, quantity has a quality all its own. And he would just get a ton of people and overwhelm the enemy. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you've had, when you've got like a five to one advantage, that means you got five guys trying to stab one guy. Right. One of them's going to get through. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so let's talk briefly about the loyalists, shall we? It's estimated that approximately 40 to 45% of the colonists supported the rebellion, while 15 to 20% remain loyal to the crown. The rest of the people attempted to stay neutral and keep a, you know, a low profile. I could see that. You, we don't want to have anything to do with it. You can't see us. We're invisible. <laughs> or, uh, hey, I've got work to do. You do whatever you need to do. I've got watches to fix or whatever the case may be. I'm growing corn. Leave me alone. That's right. This corn, corn isn't going to grow itself. Well, it will, but not quite as well without a guided hand. Right. It's estimated that at least 25,000 loyalists fought with the British. Wow. Thousands served in the Royal Navy. Um, on land, the loyalists fought alongside the British in most battles uh, in North America. And a lot of them fought in partisan units, especially in the Southern theater of operations. Now, the British did have a lot of different difficulties trying to maximize the use of these guys. There's a British historian named Jeremy Black, and he wrote, quote, In the American War, it was clear to both royal generals and revolutionaries that organized and significant loyalist activity would require the presence of British forces. And, of course, that presence was hard to get. Right. In the South, the use of loyalists presented the British with a number of problems of strategic choice because it was necessary to disperse these guys in a wide area to defend the, you know, their holdings. They also recognized there was a need for the maintenance of a large concentrated force to counter major attacks from the American forces. And the British were forced to ensure that their military actions would not offend the loyalists' opinions of them. All you got to do is piss these guys off and they jump sides. That's right, yeah. It's kind of early uh, hearts and minds type mentality when trying to engage with war. Right. So this forced the British to eliminate options that they had, like living off the country, also destroying property for intimidation purposes. Was that a codified British uh, technique? Well, that's what all European armies did. They lived off the land. Right. I, under, so I got they, that part. But the destroying stuff for intimidation purposes, it's like, well, I know we normally do this, fellas, but uh, not, not this well, engagement. A lot of European militaries had a scorched earth policy. Mm -hmm. You move through an area, you destroy everything in that area. Right. You can't do that here or you're going to tick off the people that are on your side. That's true. And the last thing is they also couldn't get payments from the colonists. Right. Because if you demand payment, they're like, but these guys aren't. Mm -hmm. Screw you. I'm going to go fight with them. <laughs> right. So the British, 
uh, when they got into the war, they were very confident about what they were going to be able to do. They had the most powerful Navy. They had a very well-trained professional army. They had a sound financial system. They had a stable government. And they had experienced leadership, you know, because they were fighting the rest of the world. Right. But, of course, they had major challenges. Compared to the U.S., they had no major allies. Because, again, they were fighting, fighting everybody. everybody. Right. They had only a small amount of troops provided by the German states to bluster their army, which was relatively small. So at the beginning of the war, the British army was less than 48,000 worldwide. Wow. That's not very much. Yeah. They did not have effective recruiting campaigns. So that kind of, you know, shot them in the foot. By 1778, the army was pardoning criminals in exchange for military service. You know, just like Russia is doing yeah. with their, their war. They also extended the age range that they had for military members from 16 to 50. Whoa. So even though their officer and non-commissioned officer corps were professional and experienced... The professionalism was diluted because a lot of their officers bought their rank. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. So, yeah, so those guys didn't have any military experience. So because of this, the inexperienced officers a lot of times found their way into positions of high responsibility. So, you know, Admiral... Yuckamuck had no military training. He was only admiral because he paid a hundred thousand pounds to the crown. Yeah, but dig that great uh, uniform at parties, though. He's an admiral. Oh, the, it's all for the uniform. That's right. But now Admiral Yuckamuck is commanding a fleet, a, a group of sixteen to fifty-year-olds that don't know better. That he's uh, completely inept. Eesh. Uh, another problem they had was distance. Even though the Royal Navy was the largest, most experienced in the world, it took months for troops to reach North America. And orders that were transported were often out of date by the time they got there. Because, you know, the military situation on the ground had changed between right. when the orders were written and by the time they got there. So did they have to go up the chain every time? So if something happens in the field, would it have to be reported all the way back to England and then decided upon and then come all the way back to America? I guess depending on the level, maybe not. Depending, Yeah, depending on the level of decision that had to be made, yes. Wow, that's, that's rough. That's six months of waiting to see what to do. Yeah. Uh, they also had logistical problems whenever they operated away from the coast. They were vulnerable to guerrilla attacks on the supply chains whenever, you know, they went inland. Mm -hmm. They used flint in their weapons. And this also put them at a disadvantage on the battlefield because their weapons could only fire for six rounds before they were having to resharpen their flints. Interesting. While the American flints could fire 60 rounds before they needed to be resharpened. That's a huge difference in flints. American flints versus British flints. Hmm. A common expression ran along the British troops, which was, quote, Yankee flint was as good as a glass of grog. Uh, yeah. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. <laughs> now, discipline in the army was harsh. They had little self-discipline. So gambling, looting, and, you know, going after the women, mm. heavy drinking. These were very common problems among the entire chain of command. So they suffered from mediocre organization with, you know, food supplies, they were bad and often spoiled because of the 
huge amount of land that they had to like just kind of contain well they to travel oh right before they could reach their intended beneficiaries and because they didn't want to take off the loyalists they were not able to find reliable substitutes in the colonies themselves well isn't it just speaking of the problems they had in the entire chain of command i uh, please give me your insight as a navy man uh isn't gambling and promiscuity aren't those like naval traditions they're military traditions period okay it's nice to see it, that not a lot has changed i mean i'm not trying to throw shade on any military member i thank you for your service but i thought these are just known realities well whether they're known realities or not doesn't make it uh acceptable that's true okay that's right and it does interfere with a conflict that has enough obstacles already. Yeah, you'll still get punished showing up to work drunk in the modern military. You know, even outside the military, I've heard that's a problem. You, you do get fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the military takes it even more. Um, you can get a sunburn and you'll be charged with damaging government property. No kidding. Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. So, more problems that the British had. When the war started, they had around 8,000 men stationed in North America. But these 8,000 were required to cover an area that stretched from northern Canada to Florida. Dang. About 2,000 miles. <laughs> it's huge. So, I mean, that's four troops per mile. Right. Golly. Imagine being a British soldier in the army and you're used to the British Isles where walking, if you have to march somewhere, it's, it's not too terrible, but in the American, the North American continent, it's like, yeah, we're marching to South Carolina. It's like, oh, it's quite a long ways. Okay. See you in a couple months. Right. Or you can march to the other side of the island in a day. Right. Probably not, but still point taken. <laughs> the colonies before the war were not united. So that means there is no central area of strategic importance. In European conflicts, the capture of a capital city often meant the end of the war. However, in the U.S., when, you know, British seized New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Boston, or Washington, D.C., it doesn't mean the end of the war. Imagine the look on their faces. Haha, -ha, we have your capital. It's like, we don't care. We're still fighting. What? Oh, it's so different. Wow, you captured Washington, D.C. Guess what? Now the capital's in Philadelphia. That's right. We're nimble as a country. Yeah. And even though that during the height of the war, the British had some 56,000 men in the country, they lacked the numbers to defeat both the Americans while also occupying captured areas. Right. There are so many of them. Yeah. It was not unusual for the Americans to suffer a number of defeats, only to have the British retreat because they could not occupy what they took. That has to be frustrating for the British. I mean, you go through all this effort to defeat an enemy, and then it's like, well, it's it's more of a an obligation and detriment to maintain this position, so just withdraw. Well, you, you can't maintain it. You don't have enough men to maintain it. Right. I mean, you only have 56,000 at, at one point. Uh, uh, the Americans have more than that. They were fielding, at, the, at their max, 90,000 at one time. Yeah, that's hard to... Oh. That's tough. So it's hard to battle and occupy at the same time. Right. And then they, they couldn't do scorched earth, which you would normally do as an alternative, like you said, because otherwise the loyalists would be, uh, they, they would switch sides most likely because you're destroying their land as well. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Quite a pickle the British have found themselves in. Yeah. The manpower shortage became even more critical when France, Spain, and the Netherlands entered the war. Because, again, now British had a forefront war. 
The British also had to contend with a number of psychological factors during this war. They needed to maintain the loyalist allegiance, so they had setbacks with that because they could not use their harsh methods of suppressing rebellions, uh-huh. like they had in Ireland and Scotland. Oh yeah, remember how you remember how br- uh, brutal they were to them? Absolutely, yes. Well, I I don't know quite as well as they do, but I've heard stories. Yeah. So even with these limitations, neutral colonists were often driven into the ranks of the revolutionaries because of the conflict. For instance, the war in the Carolinas, it was marked by heavy brutality on both sides. Uh, Also, a single American victory could often reverse the impact of a string of British victories. And all of this went a long way to galvanizing patriot support for the war and of, you know, getting allies in France and Spain to support them. Right. It reminds me a little bit about um, what I had heard regarding Alexander the Great of Macedonia or Macedonia, however you pronounce that. Uh, Mm -hmm. When he was invading Persia, he had to win every single contest because if he lost one, he was out and he just kept winning. And so he had supply chain issues to deal with and manpower issues, and but he, he was able to strategically recruit and get supplies. And yeah, the British are hamstrung completely in those avenues here. And even if they win a string of victories, if they lose one, it really changes the course of events. Yeah. So the British also had difficulties in appointing generals. Um, for instance, General Thomas Gage, who was in command of the British forces in North America when the war started, was criticized for being too lenient. Uh, General Jeffrey Amherst, the first Baron of Amherst, turned down a appointment as commander in chief because of unwillingness to take sides in the conflict. Uh, Admiral Augustus Keppel turned down a command saying, quote, I cannot draw the sword in such a cause. And the Earl of Effingham publicly resigned his commission when his command, the 22 Regiment of Foot, was deployed to America. Uh, William Howey and John Burgon were members of Parliament who opposed military solutions to the American Rebellion. And Howey and Clinton stated that they were unwilling to participate in the war and were only following orders. The British Parliament was also against military opposition to the Americans. Lord Lord North held the job of Prime Minister, and at that point he had a Tory majority backing him, and he was advocating the military suppression of the U.S., but they were constantly opposed by a large Whig minority. And these guys, you know, fiercely voiced their objection in pursuing military solutions to this problem as they saw it. Then the Whigs gained prominence in the parliament as, you know, the British started getting strategically defeated. And this, you know, did not help their internal struggles over what to do. So, I mean, not... Everybody wasn't even supporting the crown. Yeah, even on England's side, it's they're, they're having trouble getting the support they need. Yeah. So over the course of the war, Great Britain also signed treaties with a number of different German states, and they supplied about 30,000 soldiers. What? They made up about one-third of the British troop strength in North America. These German soldiers became known as Hessians to the Americans. The revolutionary speakers called these guys, quote, foreign mercenaries, and they are scorned as such in the Declaration of Independence. By 1779, the number of British and German troops stationed in North America was over 60,000. But those 60,000 are spread from Canada to Florida. It's quite a distance, as we've mentioned. Now, at the beginning of the war, a number of German states offered military support to Great Britain. But, you know, Great Britain was like, ah, now we got this. Don't worry about it. 
those fools. But as the war kept going and dragging on, Great Britain was like, you know what? We need more Let's, men. Hey, remember that conversation we had last year? Let's pick that back up. Yeah. Now, the Secretary of State at War, a guy named Lord Barrington, and the and a guy named General Edward Harvey were both opposed very much to a land war. Barrington had recommended withdrawing the army from the colonies to Canada, Nova Scotia, and Florida, and urged a naval blockade because this would damage the trading activities very badly. But of course, the indecision in Parliament. Uh, so let's move on to the African Americans. Both slaves and freemen served on both sides during the war. The British recruited slaves belonging to the Americans and promised them freedom to those who served because of the act of Lord Dunmore's proclamation. And because of manpower shortages, General Washington lifted the ban on black enlistment in the Continental Army in July, in January of 1776. Hmm. So small all-black units were formed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Many of these African Americans were promised their freedom for serving. Some of these men who were promised their freedom were sent back to their slavers after the war was over because of quote political convenience yeah that sucks yeah does that imply that um rhode island and massachusetts were uh slave states at this point because i know generally they're considered northern states and northern states aren't associated with slavery as much but i know like maryland for example did have slavery even through the civil war all, all of the states at this time were slave states. That didn't change until the Civil War. That's not something I think about, so that's that's an important piece of information. Thank you. George Washington himself owned slaves. Well, he was a Virginian, correct? And still North. Well, not according to the Confederacy. Well, the Confederacy was wrong, obviously. <laughs> that's why they lost. Is that why? Okay. For those of you who want to know the real story of why they lost, listen to our series on the Civil War. Yes. Uh, another all-black unit came from St. Domingo with the French colonial forces. Hmm. So at least 5,000 black soldiers fought for the revolutionary cause. Tens of thousands of slaves escaped during the war and joined the British lines. Others simply moved away from the chaos, just got out of there. Uh, for instance, in South Carolina, nearly 25,000 slaves, which is about 30% of the enslaved population, either fled, migrated, or died during the war. Now, as you can imagine, this you know disrupted plantation production during and after the war uh, quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, when the British removed their forces from Savannah and Charleston, they also evacuated 10,000 slaves belonging to the Loyalists. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Altogether, the British evacuated around 20,000 African Americans at the end of the war. More than 3,000 of them were freedmen, and most of these were resettled in Nova Scotia. Huh. I did not know that. And, of course, they also sold some people in the West Indies. Uh, so, the Native Americans. The Native Americans east of the Mississippi River were affected by the war. And many communities were divided over how they were going to respond to this war. There were a few times on friendly terms with the Americans. But most Native Americans opposed the United States because they were threatening their territory. Imagine that. It makes sense. Uh, there was about 13,000 Native Americans who fought with the British, the largest of the groups coming from the Iroquois tribes, and they sent about 1,500 men. Wow. 
Now the Iroquois Confederacy was shattered as a result of the conflict. Although they did not take sides, the Seneca, Onondaga, the Cayuga nations sided with the British. Members of the Mohawk tribe fought on both sides, and many Tuscaria and Wania sides sided with the colonists. The Continental Army sent out what was called the Sullivan Expedition on raids throughout New York to cripple the Iroquois tribes that had sided with the British. And both during and after the war, friction between the Mohawk leaders, Joseph Lewis Cook and Joseph Brandt, who had sided with the Americans and British respectively, you know, helped keep the divide widening. Wow. Uh, The Creek and Somali tribes fought with the British in Georgia and South Carolina. And in 1778, a force of about 800 Creek Indians destroyed American settlements along the Broad River in Georgia. Creek warriors also joined Thomas Brown's raids into South Carolina and helped Britain during the Siege of Savannah. Many Native Americans were involved in the fighting between Britain and Spain on the Gulf Coast and up the Mississippi River, mostly fighting for the British. Thousands of Creek, Chickasaw, and Choctaws fought near or in major battles, such as the Battle of Fort Charlotte, the Battle of Mobile, and the Siege of Pensacola. Uh, Let's see. So we're going to finish up with the cost of this conflict. So casualties on the American and their allies. Um... While we don't know the total loss of life because, you know, not just killed in action, there was also, you know, disease that claimed far more than guys who actually died in battle. Uh, There was a smallpox uh, epidemic that swept across the states that killed 40 people in Boston by itself. Um, a historian named Joseph Ellis, he suggested that when George Washington decided to inoculate his troops against smallpox, that this was actually one of his most important decisions that he made. I didn't know he did that. That's interesting. There at least 25,000 Americans died during active military service. About 6,800 of these deaths were in battle. Uh, 17,000 were from disease. Wow. Um, 8, eight to 12,000 died of starvation as well. And this was mostly as prisoners of war. Remember when we talked about the uh, prison ships? Yes. In New York? Right, and how terrible they were? Yeah. Uh, a separate estimate puts the total death toll at around 70,000 which if it this figure is true uh, this would make this war deadlier than the civil war uncertainty between these two estimates mostly come from how many people actually died from disease I can see that wow Um, the number of Americans wounded or disabled estimated between 8,500 and 25,000. Whoa. This number's always blow my mind. Yeah. Um, so, proportionate to the population during this time, this war was the second deadliest conflict in American history, ranking ahead of World War II and behind the Civil War. Not something I think about very often as far as it being second, but that is, that's significant. Yeah. Now the British and their allies, the, a British Lieutenant wrote a report that detailed a list of 205 British officers killed in action, which including included deaths in Europe, the Caribbean and the East Indies, as well as the U S 
So this puts the British army losses at some 4,000 or killed or died of their wounds. Um, a table that was compiled in eight in 1781 puts the British army deaths at 6,046 in North America. That doesn't sound quite as bad, but I guess they had many other fronts like you were talking about. Yeah. Um, also 3,326 in the West Indies. There were approximately 1,800 Germans killed in combat out of a total of 7,774 German deaths. About 171,000 sailors served in the Royal Navy during the war. About a quarter of these having been press ganged. About 1,240 were killed in battle, while 18,500 died from disease. The greatest disease that they died of was scurvy. Um, they had known that that lime juice or lemon juice would prevent scurvy, but nobody took it seriously. Really? I thought yeah. it was just a matter of they didn't know, but that's... No, they knew. They would not eliminate scurvy in the Royal Navy until 1790. Wow. Limes and lemons make everything taste so good. Why would you not? I don't know. Make lemonade. You're right. Yes. Uh, let's see. About 42,000 British sailors deserted during the war. So the well, last area we're going we're gonna to talk about are the financial costs. The British spent about 80 million pounds and ended with a national debt of 250 million pounds. Whoa. Which uh, is financed at about nine and a half million a year in interest. The French spent about 1.3 billion livres, which is equal to about 56 million pounds. Their total national debt was 187 million pounds, which they could not easily finance. No way. Yeah. A, over half the French national revenue went to debt service in the 1780s. That's enormous. Over half. Wow. Re French Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and another reason why they couldn't pay their debt back as quickly is because the government actually could not raise taxes without the public's permission. Really? Yes. The U.S. spent $37 million at the national level, plus $114 million by the states. This was mostly covered by loans from France and the Netherlands, loans from America, from Americans, and the issuance of an increasing amount of paper money. The U.S. finally solved its debt and currency problems in the 1790s when the Secretary of Treasury, a guy named Alexander Hamilton, Perhaps you've heard of him? I have, because I carry $10 bills. Mm -hmm. He secured legislation by which the national government assumed all of the state's debts. In addition, created a national bank and a funding system based on tariffs and bond issues that paid off the foreign debts. Pretty, pretty brilliant, actually. Yes. So next time, we're going to go a little bit deeper in the campaigns and theaters in the specific states and areas. Nice. So we like to end every episode in honoring one of our fallen angels with HeroCards.us. And today we are going to honor Lieutenant Commander Eugene E. Lindsay of the United States Navy. His hometown was Sprague, Washington. He served in the Torpedo Squadron 6, VT-6, USS Enterprise, CV-6. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross two times and a Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was June 4th, 1942, killed in action near Midway Atoll. He was 36 years old. As a young man, Eugene Jean Lindsay moved frequently. He was born on July 2nd, 1905, to parents Albert and Delia Lindsay in Sprague, Washington. 
According to the 1927 edition of the U.S. Naval Academy's Lucky Bag Yearbook, Jean attended six high schools in Arkansas, Kansas, and Texas before graduating from Fort Smith High School in western Arkansas in 1923. Lindsay passed the entrance exam for the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and received a congressional appointment from Arkansas. He entered as a plebe on September 8, 1923, and at the academy, Lindsay excelled in sports, including cross-country, track, diving, swimming, and gymnastics. His fellow plebes gave him the nickname Eel, based on his initials. The Naval History and Heritage Command recounts Lindsay's naval assignments. Quote, Following graduation, Lindsay served on USS Saratoga CV-3. In 1929, he graduated from flight school and was assigned to VB-1B, Aircraft Squadron's Battle Fleet. In 1930, he transferred from VB-2, the bombing squadron assigned to USS Lexington, CV-2. Following his tour on Lexington, Lindsay was assigned to VP-6, patrol squadron based in Pearl Harbor. In 1935, he enrolled as a student at the Naval Postgraduate School, then located in Annapolis, and in the following year, continued his postgraduate aeronautical engineering studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Returning to the fleet in July 1938, Lindsay served with the VO-4 Observation Plane Detachment of USS Maryland, BB-46, and on 3 June 1940, Lindsay assumed command of VT-6, the torpedo squadron assigned to USS Enterprise, CV-6. In the months before the December 7th, 1941, a surprise Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the aircraft carrier Enterprise was used to shuttle planes and pilots from western U.S. ports to Pearl Harbor and Pacific Islands off of, or west of Hawaii. Enterprise was scheduled to arrive back at Pearl Harbor on December 6th, 1941, but fortunately was delayed due to inclement weather. The next day, the crew of Enterprise was still at sea on the morning of the Japanese attack, arriving at Pearl Harbor later in the evening. With the U.S. entry into World War II in the first half of 1942, Enterprise and her airmen fought throughout the Pacific, including operations in the Gilbert Islands, Marshall Islands, Wake Island, and the Marcus Islands. In April, Enterprise sailed in support of the Doolittle Raid, which demonstrated that American bombers could indeed reach Japan. Besides strategically targeting Japanese munitions factories, the operation was intended to shake the morale of the Japanese people and raise the hopes of Americans after the devastation at Pearl Harbor. Lieutenant Commander Lindsay's courage in combat as a fighter pilot would earn him the Navy Cross, two distinguished flying crosses, and a Purple Heart. His final mission came in the Battle of Midway, the the decisive victory that turned momentum against Imperial Japan in the Pacific leading his Torpedo Squadron 6, VT-6. Lindsay piloted a Douglas TDB Devastator torpedo bomber. On June 4, 1942, the Enterprise's air group launched to attack a Japanese carrier strike force that was approaching the Midway Atoll. Lindsay had been badly injured in a landing mishap a week earlier. Doctors feared that he'd broken his back, and his face was so badly bruised that he couldn't put on his flight goggles. He left his hospital bed and went to his air group commander, Lieutenant Commander C. Wade McCluskey. When McCluskey asked Lindsay if he could fly, Lindsay answered, quote, This is what I've been trained for, and I will take my squadron in. Lieutenant Commander Lindsay's Torpedo Squadron 6 encountered a swarm of enemy fighter planes and heavy anti-aircraft fire. Of the 14 torpedo bomber planes that took off from Enterprise that morning, only four returned safely. At age 36, Lindsay was listed as missing in action, along with his aviation chief radioman, Charles Tilden Grant of Middletown, Ohio. A year later, both airmen were declared presumed dead. In Honolulu, Hawaii, Lieutenant Commander Eugene Elbert Lindsay is memorialized at Court 3 in the Court of the Missing at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. In March of 1944, the United States Navy launched the destroyer USS Lindsay, DD-771, named in his honor. So, Lieutenant Commander Eugene E. Lindsay, thank you. Thank you. All right, XO, take us out. All right, yes, sir. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Uh, It's always nice to hear these stories, just Dale and I, but the more the merrier. So tell a friend, tell a family member, and and join us. 
Uh, if you want to email us, you can do so by emailing us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, alternatively, if you'd like to uh, message us or post about us on Twitter slash X, you can do that at usnhistorypod. We also have a Discord channel if you want to join up. Uh, you can find the link to that in the show notes. Uh, additionally, we're on YouTube, so feel free to listen to this podcast on the YouTube platform. If you're already doing that, thank you. And uh, yeah, be sure to rate and review, and we'd love to hear from you. And as always, fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.